the Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter 13, To Concord. After the sun rose above the bare trees, a tanned Sierra with a four-horse trailer pulled up in front of the Simmons house. The driver introduced himself as Tyler Hendricks. His brother Charles came along to ride shotgun, literally. Draining the Simmons's fuel oil tank was not a fast process. The little fittings weren't designed to move large volumes. By patient bucket brigades with small buckets, fuel was transferred to the Sierra. Tyler calculated that they might need seven gallons to make the round trip with a heavy load. Ten allowed a margin for peace of mind. Before they had finished, a dark red Laramie pulled up with a second four-horse trailer in tow. Arthur and Millari had his wife and adult son, Eric, along. Both carried long guns. Arthur wore a shoulder holster. "'Are you guys expecting it to be a dangerous trip?' Martin asked. "'Not really,' said Arthur. "'Certainly not like we had in Iraq, right, Tyler?' "'Nah, nothing like that,' said Tyler, with a shake of his head. "'That was a war zone, crawling with hostiles.' Still, stands to reason that a convoy of four pickups pulling horse trailers might arouse curiosity among the greedy, or the desperate. Oh, well, I was just wondering, Martin said, because I was thinking of having my wife come along. She grew up with cows, so I thought she could give Mr. Colliffe a hand checking him out. But I don't want her coming along if you guys are expecting trouble. I don't expect big trouble, said Arthur. After all, I brought Edith along with me, didn't I? Edith, standing on the other side of the truck, heard her name. She gave Arthur a little wave. Of course, it doesn't hurt that she's got a keen eye on iron sights, too, he winked. You should bring along something besides your sidearm, Arthur said to Martin, just in case. Uh, like a carbine? Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Don't expect much for trouble in the first place, but if it does come, it'll probably be close quarters anyhow. Not much need for long scopes and sniper rifles. Two more trucks and trailers clanged and rattled down the dirt road to join the first two. All the drivers, shotguns, landers, and Martin gathered around the hood of the Sierra. Arthur spread out a map. He handed out copies to each driver. I figure to go up this way. He traced his finger along the map. Past Indian Lakes? Tyler asked. I know. There's talk of some troublesome types up there. But the alternatives are going through Nutfield, which is probably worse, or going the long way around, and we don't want to spend the fuel for that. Coming back, I figure to come down 3A and on the other side of the lakes. That way we won't use the same roads twice. Uh, what's everybody got for radios? Tyler asked. People dug in their coats, producing an assortment of radio gear. They all agreed upon a few channels. Arthur proposed a set of call signs, but the driver of the black truck demurred. That doesn't sound very serious. That's the idea, said Arthur. You go around sounding all ninja ops and people start getting curious. Better to be underestimated. Arthur was chosen as convoy leader since his Laramie was the biggest and he had the most actual experience in convoys. I'm going to take my carbine, Martin told Dustin, and one of the walkies. 
He took two extra magazines from the safe shelf. Think you'll be okay with your shotgun? Oh, sure. I kind of prefer it anyhow. Expecting trouble? Dustin asked. They don't think so, but I'd hate to run into some ruffians and have this thing here at home. Martin pocketed a half a box of extra rounds, too. He closed the safe and handed Dustin the key. This should just be a day trip. While we're gone, keep your shotgun handy at all times. Keep the high point on you, too. Issue only the twenty-two revolver to Adam and Trish for their watches. Oh, what about Susan? Dustin asked. What about me? Susan stood in the doorway. Oh, uh, we were just discussing the upcoming watches, but you just got off of one, said Martin. I'd better get out there and see where the Dunnans are, Dustin said. I haven't seen them for a while. Take it easy, Dad. Come back with a cow, eh? He winked. You know your mother won't let me have a cow, he winked back. I just got done with my shift, Susan said. All those trucks and trailers, that looks like quite a caravan. Everyone has guns to go get some cows. I didn't know this was going to be a dangerous trip. Uh, the others were saying they didn't really expect trouble. They figured the risks were low since they were going to take different routes up and back, Martin said. One of them has his wife and son along, so obviously he wasn't too worried. I asked about Margaret coming along, too. They didn't seem concerned. Oh, well, then could I, uh, come along, too? Susan asked, somewhat sheepishly. What? Martin was taken aback. He had already had mental images of her staying in the house where it was safe. Well, I don't know. I mean, what if there was some trouble? I, I think it'd be better if you stayed here. Why? You just said they didn't expect trouble. And that guy had along his wife and son. You even said she was going. So you must not think there'll be any danger either. But, uh... Martin had already removed his only viable objection. He still didn't like the idea of her coming along, though precisely why remained out of focus. She could see that his argument was out of ammunition, but took pity. If you'd really rather I stayed here, well, then I will. He wanted to say, good, that's what I want, but that wasn't true either. The trip seemed like an adventure. After the adventures they had shared on the walk up to New Hampshire, sharing another had its appeal. But he couldn't say that out loud. I just don't know why you'd want to come, he said. Perhaps she had some unrealistic expectations, which he could disqualify. I'm not sure either. It just sounds like, well, I don't know, kind of like an adventure. Martin cringed inside. She wasn't supposed to agree with his unspoken notions. I mean, things are pretty quiet around here, she went on. Not that I'm complaining. I mean, quiet is good, and I don't mind the chores or doing watch or, or even learning to shoot, but those are routine things. This is something different, and this is something different, and what are you doing? Why are you closing your eyes like that? I have my reasons. I have no solid reason why you shouldn't come along. He knew kryptonite was in the room. Well, it looks weird to have you talking to me with your eyes shut like that. I suppose it does, but that's how it has to be, he said. Whether you can come along or not really isn't up to me. It's not my convoy. You'll have to go ask Tyler and Arthur. They're heading up this trip. Well, there's no room in Mr. Hendrick's truck, Margaret said, shaking her head in veto. 
The two brothers are in front, you and me in the back. Our bags take up the middle space. It didn't take a rocket scientist to see that Margaret didn't want there to be any room in Tyler's truck. So Martin scuttled, suggesting that the bags ride in the pickup bed or the trailer. Such helpful suggestions wouldn't be appreciated. Mr. Landers and the other guy are in the gray truck, Margaret continued. Mr. Colliffe and the other driver are in the black one. Yeah, she could ride with us, said Arthur. And we got room for one more. They turned and walked toward their truck. Oh, cool, Susan beamed and bounced on her toes subtly. Thank you, thank you. She seemed unsure as to who to thank. She flashed a little smile at Martin, then hurried to catch up with the Emulari family. She climbed into the back seat of the dark red Laramie. Martin turned to Dustin. You're the duty officer until I get back, understand? Dustin nodded. Martin made eye contact with Adam, Trish, and Judy, who stood behind him. He's in charge until we get back. Just do your part. Margaret tossed her daybag into the back seat of the Sierra. Why did she want to come along? I tried to suggest she stay here, but she wanted some adventure or something. Martin tossed his bag in and climbed in on the other side. Tyler and Charles studied their small map, noting the waypoints marked in red. After a quick radio check from each truck, the Cheshire Cow Convoy started to roll. You know how I feel about cows, Margaret said quietly. She continued to watch the bare trees glide by. I know, said Martin, but you said we needed more protein sources. We do. I'm just not thrilled. When I graduated high school, I couldn't wait to get off the farm. When I left for college, I had truly hoped I had seen the last of tending cows. This is Big Apple to Dumplings, hissed the walkie-talkie on the dashboard. We're coming up on Indian Lakes in a bit. All eyes peeled. Charles and I'll take the front quarters, Tyler said over his shoulder. You two take the rear quarters. Call them out if you see anything. There wasn't much to see for several miles. Bare branches, naked tree trunks, and the occasional house that looked abandoned. The radio hissed. Alert. Sight four people in the woods on the left. Fifteen yards in. Go, porcupine. We see him, too, replied one of the trucks ahead. We're going porcupine, said Tyler. Windows down, guns ready, barrels visible. Charles, Martin, keep your eye on your quarters. Don't want any surprises, because we're all looking on one side. Cold air rushed through the cab of the truck. Martin braced himself against the seat back of the front seat. His hand, under the foregrip of his carbine, rested on the open window sill. Margaret set herself in a position against the driver's seat, the way she saw Martin brace himself. She held her pistol at high ready as she looked over her shoulder to get a look at the people in the woods. She's a cool cucumber, Martin thought, as he watched Margaret scanning the woods for a first glimpse. Margaret was never one to utter girly screams. Even when she had spotted a spider, which she hated, discovering one was stated as a matter-of-fact problem to be solved. Martin, I have something for you to deal with. He knew that that meant that she had found a spider. At least he was of some value to her as spider cleanup. Now, with even the prospect of ruffians, Martin could see her head scanning in the same quick sweeps that she did when she was on spider alert. This time, however, she was ready to face these spiders with one in the chamber and the safety off. 
Martin wondered if Susan was regretting her desire for adventure. Tyler keyed his radio. Big Dumpling sees him, too. They're not doing anything, Margaret said. They're just watching us go past. That's good, said Tyler. Stay sharp, though. They could still be eyes for a group further up. If they were part of a group farther up the road, that second group never showed itself. The rest of the route through the Indian Lakes area had no more sightings. Nonetheless, it made Martin and the others too busy being alert to make conversation. At waypoint four, Arthur called off the porcupine. It felt good to get the windows back up. Arthur kept a brisk pace, so the wind chill was stiffening hands and drying out eyes. Ninety-three seemed safer, as the brush line was farther from the pavement. Buildings were farther away, too. Being more exposed made them more vulnerable to snipers, if there were any. Martin hoped the element of surprise would mean that no one was in a sniper position. The sheet metal of the truck wouldn't stop any bullets. Pickups were not Humvees. Martin smiled to himself, recalling that he had never seen 93 empty. Even coming home on the last flight in, 93 always had traffic. When traffic was heavy, three lanes seemed almost claustrophobic for lack of maneuvering room. As the caravan of trucks and trailers headed north, 93 seemed like an extravagant waste of pavement. They were the only thing on the road. Modern highway engineering had pulled nature away from the road and erected sound barrier walls between traffic and homes. There was nothing to see. No one called out any sightings all the way past Manchester. It wasn't hard to imagine that they were the only people on the planet. Hey, Margaret called out. I see a guy up on the rocks there, in the median. Look. Martin's eyes followed her pointed finger. There was a man, crouched down within a V-notch of the granite bluff in the median. What remained of a solid rock hill blasted away to make room for a flat interstate. Martin only got a glimpse before they had driven past, and the trailer obscured his view. I didn't see anything, said Tyler. Are, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I saw him too, said Martin. One guy, in a gray hoodie, with blue sleeves. That, that's what I saw, said Margaret. I didn't see any guns or anything, just that one guy. Tyler keyed his radio. Did any of you spot anyone in the port side second ago? On top of the rocks in the median? Negative, big dumpling, said one of the others. Negative, said Arthur. Looks like we had a brief sighting, Tyler radioed. Keep eyes peeled up there. There were no more sightings. They blew through the empty toll station. The highway up to Concord was just as empty. Nothing but trees to see. It seemed more like off-peak tourist season than anything post-apocalyptic. Coming up on waypoint 15, crackled the radio. We're almost conquered, Tyler said. We'll be back in the land of people again, so keep your eyes on your quarters. Where 93 had been a desolate landscape, Concord was a kicked hornet's nest. People seemed to be walking everywhere. The convoy of four trucks and trailers garnered more than a few comments and stares and pointing. The streets looked normal, still lined with many parked cars, whether any of them were still drivable or sat in the same parking spot for the past two weeks, it wasn't obvious. The absence of functioning traffic lights was about the only outward flaw in the appearance of normal. 
The radio on the dash hissed. Let's go around the block up left here and all pull up in line on Capitol Street. It looked like there was some room there for all of us. Roger that, crackled one of the other drivers. They stowed their long guns before getting out of the trucks. People walking on the sidewalks stopped to stare. Martin noticed that there were no cars driving on the roads, only parked ones. Perhaps they hadn't seen moving vehicles for several days, and this was a novelty. People seemed more apprehensive than scheming. The convoy's occupants gathered in a largish cluster on the sidewalk near the State House building. Several small side conversations started, but were interrupted by a man rushing up to them. "'You're late,' said Mr. Ingalls. "'Thank goodness you made it, but there isn't much time. Quickly, come this way.' He waved for Martin and Landers to follow him. The others in their party began to follow, too, but Ingalls held up his hand. "'I'm sorry. It's rather crowded in there already. I must ask you all to wait out here.' He turned his attention to Martin and Landers again, dissatisfied that they had stopped. "'This way. Come on. Come on.' Ingalls hurried up the granite steps. The lobby of the State House was full of people, all bundled up in winter coats and hats. Ingalls led them around tall white columns and into a hallway. There's already a couple of groups in with the governor now. If we hurry, we can be ready when he's done. The hallways felt all the more narrow, with knots of people chatting together. It seemed like every linear foot of wall space was taken up with portraits of stern-looking men in 1700s or 1800s attire. The white walls and floors helped reflect what little light came through the tall windows in rooms off of the hallway. "'Wait over there,' said Ingalls. "'It looks like the governor isn't done with the last group yet. I'll go in and see. You can have a seat if you like.' Ingalls pointed to some high-backed leather chairs along the wall. More knots of people carried on their conversations in the waiting room, despite Ingalls. Martin and Landers walked through, interrupting them. Any idea what this is all about? Martin asked Landers. I didn't get too much out of Ingalls yesterday, but connecting the dots, I guess the state is in some kind of trouble. Well, what kind of trouble? When what would it have to do with us? Not sure, said Landers. This outage has everything scrambled. The governor's statement that I read yesterday sounded like the state was hamstrung for much of anything. Well, I got that, said Martin. But why ask us up here? Maybe they just wanted to impound our trucks and trailers, and this was a ruse to get us all to deliver them. Landers tried to chuckle. Martin frowned. He hadn't thought about the state trying to impound whatever it wanted. They weren't his trucks or trailers, but the effrontery raised hackles. Yet he had seen nothing to raise suspicions. The state seemed more fuddled and impotent than devious. They also had left a sizable party with the vehicles. He should have heard something on his walkie-talkie if there was trouble. Landers noticed that Martin wasn't chuckling along. Sorry, guess I don't have Hoopa's sense of humor. The tall double doors opened. A cluster of people, still engaged in conversations, ambled slowly through the doorway. Ingalls, the governor, and a pair of other staffers were chatting. Martin recognized the two men coming out of the governor's office. Leo, Martin said. He walked closer to them. Leo Walsh and David? Leo looked at Martin blankly. No mental caller ID was coming up for him. David, on the other hand, smiled broadly. 
Hey, you're that Marvin guy. Uh, Martin. Yeah, yeah, Martin. Hey, Leo, it's that Martin guy that we let ride on our running boards, remember? The light bulb went on. Oh, yeah, hey, what are you doing up here? I thought you and your girlfriend lived in Andover or something. Is she okay? Seemed kind of like a nervous Nelly. Landers gave Martin a raised eyebrow. Thanks for that, Leo, Martin winced. Oh, you mean Susan? Well, she's good, but uh, she's not my... So, did you get asked to talk to the governor, too? Leo looked around the paneled room. It is kind of the big time, eh? Martin nodded. No, what did they ask you about? Ah, a couple of days ago, we were hauling in a couple of hoods who broke into a house. David interrupted. Yeah, we think they were behind a string of break-ins. Hey, I'm telling it, Leo insisted. Anyhow... We had him zip-tied and handed him over to the police when this guy comes up and asks what we were doing. We told about organizing neighborhood militias, though the official types shy away from that word. Too scary, I guess. They like to call us citizens' defense groups, David interrupted again. Yeah, but CDG sounds lame, kind of like a food additive or something, Leo shushed him. Gangs were taken over our part of Manchester. Meth heads and addicts going nuts from lack of a fix were trouble enough. But that was more like animal control. The real trouble was the gangs. They organized themselves into two coalitions. The Blues and the Crowns, Martin asked. Yeah, you live in Manchester too? No, but I heard about them. It sounds kind of brutal. Oh yeah, they started shaking people down for food and fuel and being pretty rough about it. So me and David figured two could play at the organizing game. We got together our like-minded neighbors, united resistance and all that. Regular patrols was the key, boots on the ground and eyes everywhere. That, David added, and a couple of squads of muscle to call, outnumber them when we needed to. The governor was asking us how we did it and if we could train others to do it too. The state doesn't have enough police or even National Guard to really stop the gangs. They're like cockroaches. I still say they're like mold, said David. Leo gave his brother a large eye roll. Like mold, he repeated with scorn. I can't believe you actually said that to the governor. Mold just sits there. It's not creepy or crawly. It just sits there. It's not scary. Maybe, but it grows all silent-like, taken over behind the walls, and before you know it, it's all over the place, and it can be deadly. I say the gangs are like mold. David nodded. Oh, never mind with your mold. Leo swatted David with his ball cap. Gentlemen, said Ingalls, please come this way. He motioned for Landers and Martin to enter the office. Hey, uh, take care, Leo, Martin waved. The Walsh brothers waved back. The long office had high ceilings and dark wood wainscoting. Workmen were tinkering on the central fireplace, perhaps to return it to functionality. The governor stood near a propane heater in the corner of the room. Ingalls made the introductions. "'Thank you for coming, gentlemen,' said Governor Vincent, "'and especially on such short notice. "'I imagine you're curious why I have asked you here. "'I don't have too much time before I will address a joint session, "'so I will give you a very brief summary "'to set up my questions for the both of you. "'As you know,' We're all in this power outage crisis, and it's causing a lot of hardships for the people of New Hampshire. Federal agencies have offered aid, as we expected that they would, 
That is what they are here for, after all. However, we have been notified that the aid comes with new emergency procedures, not simply strings attached, but entire procedural expectations which concern me greatly. Yeah, we had a bit of a run-in with a FEMA man named Quinn, Lander said. We were supposed to turn over information, and we didn't think we should. So Ingalls has told me. This is on that order, but of a greater scope. It is within my power, as governor, to authorize the new emergency measures or to decline them. However, I am going to go before a joint session to request a non-binding vote to see what the legislature thinks. Then why are we here? Martin asked. He felt impertinent, but still wondered what he had to do with anything that the governor had said. Ah, got to the chase. Here it is. As you know, I am not particularly popular with my own party, let alone with the other guys. Frankly, you never heard me say this, I don't put too much stock in what the legislature thinks about all of this. Too many of them are busybodies or fuddy-duddies who are either afraid of their own shadows or angry about somebody else's shadow. So, over the past few days, I have had my staff tour in the state to get a first-hand feel for how the people feel. I asked them to gather up some key people for some follow-up questions. That's of more value to me than the party drama that passes for oxygen around here. Mr. Landers, your townspeople voted to decline federal aid, knowing that it would be very rough on them. Landers nodded. How widespread would you say that sentiment is? Landers looked down and slowly pulled at his white beard. Uh, we're just one small town, mind you, but from what I know of people in the towns around Cheshire, there's a lot of the same feeling. Most of us have always wished the state would just butt out of, yeah, well, no no offense, none taken, and, and let people get on with their lives. They'd rather scrape by than bow and beg. Thank you, said the governor. Mr. Simmons, Ingalls tells me you're an innovator and have a get-things-done attitude. Well, I don't know. I'm not asking you. That's what Ingalls said in his report. My question to you is, are you innovating just for yourself? Martin wondered what that meant. He had always planned on ways that he and Margaret could get by in troubled times. He didn't have a strong, empathetic nature that felt bad for the grasshoppers of the world. Most of the grasshoppers were not innocent victims of bad luck, but fools who presumed good luck had no end. Taking in his son and his wife wasn't really caring for others. They were family. Taking in the Dunnans might count as caring for others, but he disliked them, so how caring was he really? Then there was the taking in of Susan. Was he really just taking in a hapless stranger, or was that somehow still a selfish act? Uh, I don't know. Well, you need to decide. If I do not authorize federal emergency measures... A lot of people in the state are going to be lacking food and supplies. I'm not suggesting that you somehow personally provide for them. But if they can see that someone is solving problems, it can give them hope. People with hope can endure much. People in despair are doomed. A woman with a clipboard walked up, apprehensive to interrupt. Uh, Governor, they're taking their seats. Thank you, Stephanie. Just a minute. So let me repeat my question. 
The governor looked Martin firmly in the eyes. Are you solving problems only for yourself, or are you willing to figure things out for others, too? Martin had only imagined solving his own household problems, food, fuel, security, yet even that included six others beside himself. Margaret was helping the walkers to get their wood stove back in shape. She and Martin were helping the Oldhams. Leaving bread for Andy seemed unselfish. A trip to fetch six cows was to benefit both his house and others as well. Others, he said, I guess. Good, they're going to need it. The governor took the clipboard from the woman and studied the papers. Other staffers gathered around, effectively squeezing out Martin and Landers. Is that all? Martin pulled at Ingalls's sleeve. What's next? The District 1 assistant admin wants to address the legislatures before the governor asks them for their joint resolution. Uh, have we got time to stay and watch? Martin asked Landers. He looked at his watch. No, we don't have a set time for being up in Canterbury, so I guess for a little while. We still have to get up there, loaded and back before dock. Uh, could we watch? Martin asked Ingalls. Sure. I'm going up to the gallery anyhow. Follow me. Ingalls led them through the nearly empty white corridors, up an ornate flight of stairs, to a mezzanine overlooking the house chamber. All of the gallery seats were filled. The air was stale. Landers spotted some open wall space on the right side where they could stand. Despite travel difficulties for some of those who lived farther from Concord, most of the seats on the house floor were filled with representatives, senators, or other officials. Several state police troopers stood along the back wall with their hands on the grips of ARs. The collusion of conversations in both the house floor and the gallery produced a roar akin to standing beside a busy highway. The speaker wrapped his gavel on a big wooden desk. Several loud cracks rang through the room. People began to quiet down. Oh, you need a desk like that, Martin said. I'd love one, said Landers, as long as you can get it to fold up and fit in a storage room. The speaker introduced Mr. Keelan, the assistant regional administrator for FEMA District 1. The man was tallish and slender, but looked emaciated behind the massive wooden furniture. Thank you, Governor Vincent, senators, representatives, and distinguished guests. This already sounds long, Martin thought. Keelan spoke in flowery circles that boiled down to disagreeing that Governor Vincent should have bothered asking for the legislature's referendum as the decision belonged to the governor alone. The undertone was that FEMA officials at the district office didn't appreciate local politicians meddling in the complicated rollout of their procedures. Oh, it was all phrased very politely and diplomatically, a skill that Keelan clearly practiced. Yet Martin had heard enough political ease over the years to decode the actual message. This is all a waste of time. Just sign the papers and let us get on with our job. These new procedures, Keelan explained, stem from extensive computer modeling by the agency, models of resource movement and human behavior. Events of this magnitude go far beyond the measures required for regional events, like hurricanes, Katrina, or Sandy. These are extraordinary events which require extraordinary measures to ensure the health and safety of the population.
Keelan pointed over his shoulder, as if gesturing to a PowerPoint slide that wasn't there. Our simulations clearly show that in the wake of an event such as this, your people will face privations and scarcity which no modern civilized population should have to endure. The agency is tasked with providing subsistence needs, food, water, and much-needed services. But there are other challenges which must also be addressed. He gripped the lectern with both hands and leaned forward. His voice grew louder. In times like these, criminal elements will seize opportunities to prey upon the weak and the vulnerable. Thefts, violence, and assaults will increase. Assaults on your wives and daughters. Law enforcement will be overwhelmed by the sheer scale of events. Women and small children at the mercy of bands of cruel criminals. He waved one arm high over his head for emphasis. Keelan paused to let the horror of his word pictures get a good seat. He resumed in a softer, more paternal tone. The agency has foreseen all of that, and we don't want any of those bad things to happen to you. We have developed procedures to ensure that your women and children are safe and sheltered, warm and fed. All we need to begin taking care of your people is for Governor Vincent to authorize our simple emergency measures. That's all. Our response teams will jump into action, and truckloads of desperately needed aid will begin to roll, bringing hot meals to the hungry, safety for the vulnerable. After all, isn't that what you, the guardians of your people, truly want? That's what the agency wants, too. The governors of all the other states in District 1 have already signed the authorizations. Their people are receiving hot meals. When your governor signs, you can, too. Martin noticed Quinn and a few other men, dressed in black, standing by the side door. They were nodding along with Kalen's speech. So, concluded Kalen, I urge you, the elected representatives of the people of this state, to fulfill your sacred trust and do what is best for your constituents. Approve this referendum. Encourage your governor to sign the authorization. Let us provide and protect. Thank you. Keelan left the lectern to mediocre applause. Quinn and the men in black tried to boost the average with exaggerated enthusiasm. They shook hands eagerly with Keelan as he exited. They high-fived each other. Governor Vincent returned to the lectern, holding a thick binder. The applause died down quickly. Ladies and gentlemen, before I ask for your referendum, you should know that this first of several volumes of the new emergency procedures reveals the price for the provision and protection Mr. Keelan spoke of. State laws and local regulations will be suspended, replaced by a regional code of conduct overseen by conduct committee. It says the suspension is temporary but there is no description of how or when local laws return. Your police and fire departments will no longer be your own, but come under the command of their operations directors. They could decide, as we've seen in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, to order all law enforcement personnel into selected urban safe zones that this book calls cantons. The governor flipped open the binder. 
There are procedures in here for impounding urban housing and relocating people within the cantons. Distribution of aid is described as only within the cantons. Martin could see Quinn frowning and shaking his head. The other men in black looked upset. Perhaps the content of the binder wasn't supposed to be discussed publicly. In short, the governor continued, the people will be given aid in exchange for their freedom. I'll close by quoting Franklin. Those who would give up their essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Mr. Speaker, please call the vote. The hall broke into a dozen shouts and protestations. It was hard to pick out individual statements. Some urged the governor not to sign. Others insisted that the people needed food and feared for bands of criminals. The speaker's gavel only slowly restored order. The attempt at a voice vote failed miserably. It was too clamorous and too close to call. The vote by sign was just as noisy, but raised hands could be counted. There were many hands raised for yes to authorize aid. Quinn looked pleased. The call for no votes brought up many more hands. Even without official counting, it was clear that the majority decided that they did not want the aid. Perhaps the price was too high. New Hampshire would fend for itself. Martin could hear Quinn's voice booming through the den. You'll regret this, Quinn shouted. You'll be changing your tune soon enough. Mark my words. When all hell breaks loose with your little towns, people are starving, being attacked. You'll be begging us to save you. Mark my words. Uh, we'd better get going, said Landers. He and Martin joined the river of people, slowly making their way out. The hallways were choked with all of the senators and representatives still debating the vote. There were crowds on the plaza and the sidewalks, too. Martin could see Red Colliff, Tyler, and Charles leaning against their trucks. He looked up and down the busy sidewalk, but he didn't see Susan. What took so long? Margaret asked. What did the governor want with you? Uh, the question was, was I solving problems for myself or others? What did you say? I said others, but I'm not sure if that's true. Mostly I just wanted to make sure our house was taken care of. I felt pretty selfish. But then I thought of you helping the Walkers and the Oldhams. It seems like it's mostly you helping others. What about you leaving bread for that Andy kid? Or taking Judy up to listen to Walter's radio? That's caring about others. Margaret said. No, oh, I didn't think of those. Well, you still did them, so I guess you answered right. But that doesn't sound like it would have taken that long. Oh, well, then Landers and I wanted to stay and hear how the legislature voted on accepting federal aid or not. Margaret climbed into the back of the Sierra. And? It's still up to the governor, but it sounds like not to me. If they turn down federal aid, we'll have to get by on whatever we have. So, as much as you don't like cows, it sounds like we're going to need them more than we thought. Thanks for listening. If you're liking the stories so far, please consider making a small donation to support this podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash McRowland. I've also got buttons for Buy Me a Coffee on both the website and the Podbean site. Thanks for your support.